It's like a blast, huh? Wish I could go. But I'm going to dismiss the kids so they can go have fun themselves. I want to take the opportunity to welcome all of our visitors, guests, long-time attenders. I'm so glad you're here. And if you're new here, this is your first or second week, I'd encourage you to fill out a brown card at the back. Write your name, your phone number, your email, whatever. Throw it in the black basket, and uh, we'll get in touch with you promptly. Well, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series called Seek and Find, where we're exploring how Jesus leads us to our ultimate satisfaction in Him and Him alone. And last week, we looked at how Jesus leads us to find healing in so many different kinds of ways. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the topic of forgiveness. And I think when it comes to forgiveness, we hear in the church, not just this church, but in the evangelical fold, we have an abstract perspective on what forgiveness looks like. We've sinned, Jesus forgives us, we're cleansed of those sins. It's all very abstract. It doesn't really penetrate our everyday lives. But I think forgiveness is something we all need to understand if we're going to share the bountiful, abundant love of Jesus Christ with others. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage that talks about forgiveness in a powerful way. So if you have your copy of God's Word or your Bible Gateway app, no one paid me to say that, please turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Growing up, I had to ask for forgiveness daily, just about. I broke everything in sight, not because I was angry, but because I was clumsy. You can ask my wife. Um, Golf balls, I put those through windows, dinged up some cars. I think I even dinged up uh, one of those side view mirrors. I think I broke that off. And I had to ask for forgiveness from my father all the time. And maybe you're like me and you have to ask for forgiveness for all all sorts of different kinds of things. But maybe you're not like me. And maybe you don't have to ask for forgiveness very much. And as a result, you find asking for forgiveness or forgiving kind of tough. But forgiveness is something we all need to grapple with because God has made it abundantly clear that he can and he does forgive every single one of us. And he expects the same of his children. So before we get into our text this morning, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll open our hearts and minds to the different truths that you want us to learn this morning from your word. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So Luke 15 begins this way. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, we've talked about this before. Okay, the Pharisees are those religio-political leaders who wanted to follow God by following a bunch of rules and regulations. And in general, these were mostly good people. But their strict adherence to the law of Moses made them rigid. And as a result, they didn't really understand or embrace the spirit of the law. And out out of respect for the law, these Pharisees viewed anybody who was not a faithful Jew as an unclean, unfaithful person. And they didn't want to associate with anybody like that. Now you have these tax collectors who were mainly Jewish men who collected taxes from the Jews on behalf of the Roman government. And the system was full of abuses. You think the IRS is messed up. Go back to ancient Rome. It's even worse. And these folks were hated by their fellow countrymen, not only because they were looked on as being shady or uh, um, uh, corrupt or anything, but also because their job made them ritually and ceremonially un. 
clean. Therefore, pious Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, viewed them as being separated from God. Now you have the Pharisees, and they see Jesus is hanging out with all these unclean kinds of folks. And they're thinking, what is his problem? What is he doing? And Jesus' response is to tell them three different parables. And simply put, parables are good stories or allegories that demonstrate some kind of deep truth. And this is probably Jesus' most preferred teaching method in the Gospels. He could tell the Pharisees what's what. He could lay it on thick. But he chooses to go the gentler route, which I believe was more effective. So here's the first parable, parable of the lost sheep. Then Jesus told him a parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So this is a pretty basic parable. I think you can understand it, understand the meaning. But there's just a couple things I want to point out here to you guys. First, sheep in that culture were of extreme value. They were worth a lot of money. Now, if you were a shepherd in those days, your livelihood depended on how well you shepherded those sheep. Now, losing one of those sheep meant that you lost a ton of income. So when the shepherd finds his sheep, he rejoices because it means that that income that he thought was lost has now been found again. And it's a cause for celebration, not only among himself, but but among his entire community as well. And Jesus relates this story back to the Pharisees' concerns about him chilling with the tax collectors and the sinners by saying that the angels rejoice when just one person repents. Those 99 repentant folks, that's great. That's something to be proud of. But one sinner who admits his shortcomings and turns to Jesus, that's something to celebrate. And that's why you see Jesus hanging out with these shady folks. Because he's reaching out to them. He's loving them where they're at. And he's sharing the great news of God's forgiveness. And Jesus goes on to tell them a similar parable. It says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Now here you have a lot of the same kinds of elements. Someone loses something of value. They turn over heaven and earth to find it and celebrates with their neighbors when they found it. The punchline's the same. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now just a couple things here. You look at these two parables, and you see Jesus is using very mundane things like sheep and coins to illustrate some deep truths. And I think that says something about the character of who God is. That to many, a sheep or a coin may seem of little value to those who don't own it. And yet, in the eyes of God, the sheep and the coin and the tax collector and the sinner are of great value to him. 
So I like to imagine that Jesus is telling these parables to these Pharisees. These Pharisees are kind of indulging Jesus in his uh, pro-sinner rhetoric, if you will. And they're probably rolling their eyes. But Jesus can literally see through all of their apathy and all of their disdain, which is why I think Jesus doesn't stop at two parables. He keeps going because he realizes that these Pharisees need something a little more obvious, a little more personal in order to fully understand the kind of truth that Jesus is getting at here. And the next parable he tells is one that we all know and love, and that's the parable of the prodigal son. Now, just about every week, somebody asks me, you know, Ben, what's your favorite Bible passage? What's your favorite favorite verse? I really want to know so I can go read it. Um, And I usually say, well, the whole Bible is kind of a cop-out, right? The whole Bible is great. All Scripture is inspired of God. It's It's all great. But if I were to be honest, I'd probably say that it was this passage. In fact, the very first sermon I ever preached from a pulpit to people was this passage. So I kind of have a little bit of a, a sentimental connection to it. And it means so much to me because I think that this accurately and powerfully demonstrates the power of the gospel and God's infinite capacity for forgiveness. The parable of the prodigal son. Jesus continues. He says, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, just a little bit of a, a background here, okay? It's if a son asked for his inheritance before his father had died, it's basically, he's basically saying, well, Pop, I really want your money. So let's pretend like you were dead so you can give me that money. That's just how that culture was. But fathers were strictly advised not to indulge in one of these requests. And if, you, and if you were to read the ancient book of Sirach, which was a book of Jewish wisdom, you'd come across this little passage. It says, to son or wife, to brother or friend, give no power over yourself while you live, and give not your goods to another, so they have to ask for them again. So the father isn't being a good Jewish dad. He denies the wisdom of the day, and he gives the younger son a share of the inheritance before the proper time. And Jesus goes on to say this. He says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. So the son, who hates his father, is given this large share of inheritance, and he moves so far away from home, and he starts living it up. And the text says that the son squanders all the money that he gets on wild living. Now imagine you're 15, 16, 17 years old. You move away from home, you hate your father, and you're loaded. Just imagine the kind of stuff that you would get into. Okay? you'd probably spend it on wild living. Now, some translations say that the, that the son spent it on riotous, prodigal living. But I think wild living is a more apt description because he's indulging himself in anything and everything he can spend his money on. And in, in his pursuit of all the world can offer him, he spends every single dime. 
Now imagine how devastated you would be. You're a teenager, you got no money, you got no skills, you have no job. And on top of that, a famine hits the land and you're hungry. You start off having the world as your oyster at your fingertips. Then everything slips away based on mistakes of your own doing. This kid has hit rock bottom and then some. He hits rock bottom, and then he decides to take a dirty job in order to make a living. Now, what's interesting here is that he doesn't just take any job. He doesn't shovel dirt, doesn't do anything like that. He takes a job feeding pigs. Now, if you were a good Jewish boy, you wouldn't even touch pigs because pigs were considered unclean according to the law of Moses. So not only does the son disregard the father, he disregards the law of Moses just because he's hungry. But it doesn't sound like he's feeding pigs. It doesn't sound like feeding pigs is really getting him anywhere. And it doesn't sound like the pigs are willing to share their pods either. I imagine they had some conversations about that. So he started his journey excited for the freedom and the pleasure that was ahead of him. But this kid was tired. He was hungry. He was lonely. He was poor. And that's when he realizes He's done something absolutely wrong. And something, anything, has to change. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'm going to set out. I'm going to go back to my father. And I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. The son realizes that this promise of freedom and wealth, it's fleeting. It can evaporate in an instant. And he realizes that even his father's slaves live it up. They are well taken care of. Now, as I've mentioned before in this pulpit, slaves are at the bottom of society's ladder And the son realizes that all the stuff he's done has put him just a couple notches below slaves. He's not the father's son anymore. He just wants to be the father's slave. So the son's plan is to go back to his father, admit all of his wrongdoing, and beg to be reinstated in his household, not as a son, but as a slave. And his son, this son realizes that his sin isn't without consequences. He's going to repent. He's going to ask for forgiveness. And he's going to hope just to be put on the edges of his father's love. And he makes this journey all the way back home where he started. No money to his name, no food in his stomach, but a heart filled with sorrow and shame. There's an old Jewish saying from uh, rabbis of old. says, when the Israelites are reduced to carob pods, then they will repent. Now imagine you're one of the Pharisees listening to the story. You're probably thinking to yourself, you know, well, he slept with a bunch of women. He spent his money on unholy things. He's working with pigs. This son, he's going to get what's coming. And the Pharisees are probably thinking to themselves, you know, this is where Jesus kind of comes to his senses a little bit. But these guys are dead wrong. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. 
The father doesn't even wait to go see him. His first response is to run out to him and demonstrate his compassion and his love for his son. And he's probably spent years waiting for his son to come back to him. And it's finally happened. The son says to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And this is the moment of truth. Any father would go hug his son as soon as he came home after being estranged for years. But there would probably be immediate consequences. And the Pharisees, they're just holding out hope for Jesus to finally justify their position. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The father doesn't judge. The father doesn't lecture. He isn't angry. In fact, he's happy. He's overjoyed. His first instinct is to celebrate that his lost son has finally returned home. And he's not going to chide him for wasting all of his money. Now, what's interesting is that the father calls one of his servants out to kind of clothe him. Now, imagine you're a kid. You've squatted all your money. You've traveled probably, you know, dozens of miles away. You probably wouldn't be wearing any nice clothes. And what this passage implies is that this kid's probably wearing mangled up clothes. He's not wearing any shoes. He's probably looking skinny like he hasn't had a meal in weeks. And this son was just hoping that his father would take him back as a servant. But instead, the father takes him back as a son and celebrates with everybody in the household. He's forgiven him of all the mistakes he's ever made. And it's the same punchline as the story of the sheep and the lost coin. When something that was lost is found, it's a cause for celebration. But not everybody's celebrating. It says, meanwhile... The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father's killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. So at the beginning of the story, you have two brothers. One who squanders his inheritance, the other who stays at home and works for his father. And when the older brother hears that his younger brother has returned to him, his father is celebrating. The the older son, he grows livid. He's angry. And sometimes, rarely, sometimes, we misread the story because we think that the older brother is, is a good guy. He just wants what's fair. But you listen to the language that he uses, and it's pretty clear where his heart is. He's always been trying to earn his father's favor through working hard and staying at home. Now, could you imagine how angry you would be 
If your wild younger brother went off, wasted his life only to be reconciled to your father? You've been obedient your whole life. You've followed the law of Moses. You haven't slept around. You haven't done any horrible thing. And yet it's the sinner who gets the bigger celebration. The older brother is just as lost as the younger brother. He's got no grace. He's got no love. And he's unwilling to forgive the younger brother. This isn't the parable of the prodigal son. This is the parable of the prodigal sons. So the older brother, he's angry at his father. But how does the father respond like this? He says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's where the story ends. The older son has no response. We don't know what their life was like after all that. All Jesus wants the Pharisees to remember is that it's a cause for celebration when somebody finally comes to their senses about their lostness and asks God for forgiveness. Now the symbolism of the story, I think it's pretty obvious. The Father is God who's gracious, lets us choose our own way. And the younger son is basically the tax collector or the sinner who wants nothing to do with God. And the older son is the Pharisee, the faithful Jew, who tried his hardest to love God and follow God through rules and regulations, and yet missed out on forgiveness and grace. But God the Father accepts both the wild sinners and the religious sinners indiscriminately. It doesn't matter what you've done. The love of God is bigger than all of our sin. I like to ponder this passage from Psalm 103. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Sometimes we think that God is keeping track of all of our sins in this great big list. He's just waiting up there in heaven, waiting for us to do something stupid. But that couldn't be further from the truth. He's a God who is quick to forgive, slow to be angry, ever patient, and all loving. But he's not all excusing. The father never says, well, hey, kid, here's some more money. The son has to live with the consequences of his actions. And the older brother will have to find a way to live with the younger brother he despises. So there's a huge difference between forgiving and excusing. When David sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah, and ultimately against God, God forgave him. But he ended up taking David's son away from him. God doesn't excuse sin, but he always forgives it. And I want to make that very clear because as Christians, we have a responsibility to forgive. Jesus forgives infinitely. He says that as you've been forgiven, forgive. 
If you don't forgive, then I won't forgive you. He's pretty blunt like that, guys. Forgiveness doesn't mean excusing, and it doesn't necessarily mean returning things back to the way that they were. Forgiveness means giving up your right to bitterness and harboring no ill will against another person. This can be tough to do, and sometimes we need to work through the process of forgiveness, especially after something devastating or traumatizing. But I look at these verses right here, and I think God understands how we sometimes struggle with giving forgiveness, and yet he still has compassion on us. Now, I'm going to deviate from my typical three points at the end by talking a little bit about C.S. Lewis, who was one of the greatest Christian thinkers of the 20th century. About forgiveness, he has this favorite quote. It says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Now, this is a great quote because it's true. God has looked upon us and forgiven us for all of our sins. And because of this, we have a responsibility to forgive others. And while we can never excuse evil, we can always forgive people. That means the murderer. That means the drug dealer. That means the pimp. It sounds so antithetical and so unjust, but this is what God calls us to when we take his name. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. But that's not all Lewis says. Right after this famous quote, he goes on to say, This is hard. Not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, like the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, and the nagging wife. It's easy to forgive the younger son who returned home after squandering all of his wealth. But imagine if that son stayed at home. He caused trouble daily, squandered all of his money right in front of you. It's easier to forgive the big stuff. But that little stuff, that's the real challenge right there. To forgive your boss who drowns you in work. To forgive your friend who doesn't know when to be quiet. To forgive the person at work who likes to get into arguments with you all the time. Forgiving those people is the real challenge. I want to encourage you this week. Forgive at least one person a day. Maybe you have someone in your life that is constantly on your back about something. And it gets absolutely under your skin. Forgive them anyways, because God forgives even worse in you every single day. And Lewis goes on to reflect, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We're offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exceptions, and God means what he says. There's no hint of exceptions, and God means exactly what he says. As far as the east is from the west, so he has removed all of our sins from us. And a lot of us who have been Christians for a long time continually ask ourselves, well, have I really been forgiven of all my sins? The sins I'm doing now, the sins I'm going to do? And for some of you here who aren't Christians, you might be thinking, well, with all the stuff that I've done, 
God could never forgive me. I'm here to tell you that there's nothing that you can do that will make God love you any less. And when you look at the cross that Jesus died on, it tells you a very bold message. I love you and I forgive you. Now that's not just forgiveness for what you've done. It's forgiveness for all the bad stuff you're doing now and for all the bad stuff that you will do in the future. It says in the book of Hebrews that when Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, he sat down at the throne of God. This is the once and for all sacrifice that has cleaned our slates forever. And maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're eating those carob pods. Maybe you've hit rock bottom and then some. Maybe you're here and you're here just because it's the thing that you do. Maybe you haven't experienced God's forgiveness. Maybe you haven't come to the cross and looked at it and said, I believe that everything that you've done will pay for all the bad stuff that I've done. If you seek Jesus, you are going to find forgiveness. You're going to find wholeness. You're going to find happiness. You're going to find joy. You're going to find satisfaction. He may not excuse all the stuff that you've done, but he will forgive you and call you child once again. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion, that the God of the universe sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. And as a result, if we trust in him, if we have faith in him, then we can be forgiven of all of those sins that we've done. And as the people of God, as people of the cross, God has called us to do the same thing, to forgive others. And like I said, it's a process. You may need to work through some things. You may may need to go see somebody about that. It's not going to be easy. But this is what he calls us to, to take up our crosses daily and seek him with all of our hearts. I'm going to ask the worship team up here again. And uh, as we celebrate communion, as we sing these songs, I just want you to remember to think about and reflect on how Jesus has forgiven you of all the bad stuff you've done, all the bad stuff that you're currently doing, and the bad stuff that you will do. And because of this, his grace, his forgiveness, his love empowers us to share that same love and forgiveness and grace with every single person that we know. And if you need help with this, if you, if you just are having a hard time forgiving somebody, we're going to have some folks at the back. We've been doing this the past few weeks. Come back. We'd love to pray for you about anything. Healing, it's forgiveness that you're seeking, forgiving others that you need help with. Maybe it's anything under the sun. But we'd love to pray with you and meet you where you're at because that's what Jesus has done for us. Amen. Will you stand with me as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that you've forgiven us of all of our sins. All the sins that we have done, all the sins that we are doing, and all the sins that we're no doubt going to do. I pray that you'll help us to be people who reflect daily on the forgiveness that you've extended to us so that in turn, we can extend that forgiveness to others, Heavenly Father. 
I pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, who doesn't have a personal relationship with you, that they will come forward this morning, that they will experience your love, your kindness, your forgiveness, your joy, and your grace, Lord. As we come forward and as we take communion, dipping the piece of bread that symbolizes the body of your son, Jesus, and the juice that symbolizes the blood, I pray that you'll help us to remember all the stuff that you have done for us, all the stuff that you are doing for us, and all the stuff that you will do, Lord. Help us not to live in bitterness, but to live in happiness and joy. Help us not to wallow in unforgiveness, but to forgive others, Lord, just as you continuously forgive us. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.